I am enjoying, together with you, going through the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, and it is a story. Now, I don't mean that it is fiction. No, no, no. This is history. This is fact. This is truth. But this is God, the greatest storyteller ever, the greatest story creator ever. He is telling the story of Jesus, and Luke is doing a great job recording it for us. Now, the thing is, when you tell a story, there has to be some tension, some conflict. Otherwise, it's a really boring story. Like if it went this way, hey, Jesus came, it was nice, and he went home. Okay, (laughs) it's a boring story. We don't like that, right? So there's got to be something. There's got to be a villain, an enemy, a bad guy. Somebody has to wear the black hat. And what we're going to do as we get more into chapter 5 today is we are going to be introduced to the guys who are Jesus, kind of like throughout the story, they're his most bitter opponents. These are the guys that wear the black hats. And surprisingly, they're not atheists. They're not pagans. They're not heathens. They're devoutly religious people. They wear the black hats. These are people who want tradition, not transformation. They want religion, not redemption. Let's encounter them. We're going to start out in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Okay, so there they are, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They wear the black hats in the story. Now, when you see the term teachers of the law, some of you have heard it said Pharisees and scribes. It's actually synonymous. It's the same thing. Scribes, teachers of the law. Scribes is a word that the Jews would understand. Remember, Luke is writing particularly with a Gentile audience in mind, so he kind of translates for them into something they'd know, teachers of the law. Now, these guys are lawyers, but not like we know lawyers. These are guys who are lawyers, but they're experts in religious law, all the laws in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. The Jews would just call them scripture. So these are religious lawyers. Okay, so think about that. Like a lawyer, but like in religion. Life of the party, right? (laughs) That's the guy. When you throw a shindig, you have to invite him if he's a friend, but you hope he has a conflict and doesn't come, right? So it's that kind of guy. Think of an old, stiff, stale, stuffy seminary professor. Somebody who knows books but does not know lives at all, right? Now, these are the scribes. They are two peas in a pod with the Pharisees. Uh, in fact, many of the scribes would be Pharisees. So now that we're talking about Pharisees, let's, let's get into that a little bit. I will actually drill down a little bit more next week about the Pharisees. But I've got to give you something since Luke has introduced them for the first time here. So back in that day in Israel, there would have been four kind of groups or parties or sects. They, they were the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And then the most influential group was the Pharisees. Influential at that time because they started out kind of like religious heroes. Like, like Israel wasn't taking the religion seriously. And these guys came along with back to basics. Like God is real. This stuff is real. Let's take it seriously. Let's be devout about this. So they had a goal of keeping Israel faithful to the Mosaic law. The problem is how they went about that. What they did is they built fences around the law. In other words, they kept rules to keep the rules. Man-made rules in order to keep God's rules. I'll give you an example. 
One of God's rules is, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay? So the Pharisees say, I know you should never say God's name. And they didn't. They would never say the word God at all. Well, that makes sense, right? If you never say God, then you could never take his name in vain. A rule in order to keep the, the rule, right? So man's rule in order to keep God's rule. Okay? And we have things like that today. So in the Bible, God's rule is you can't get drunk. Oh, I know, Christians will say, no drinking. Man's rule in order to keep God's rule. Or how about modesty? Yes, uh, we are commanded towards modest dress. So how about we come up with a rule, as some have, that all women must wear dresses or skirts that go down to the ankles, floor length. A rule to keep the rule. Now here's the problem with it. It doesn't always work. So a woman can wear a floor length skirt and be dressed immodestly. It can be skin tight. It can be see-through. You can have peekaboo panels, right? You can have a low-cut blouse. Like, come on! <laughs> but my skirt's to the floor! Right? Like, and what happens, and this is true, what happens in religion is you get into keeping the rules, but not the heart. And, and that's what the, the, the Pharisees are doing. They're doing righteousness by rules. And so they kept the rules meticulously. They were elitists. They were self-righteous. They were kind of judging people. They were the religious people that have that like permanent scowl on their face, right? Like if somebody is smiling, they're probably in sin. And if they're laughing, spawn of Satan right there, right? Like, so that, it's that kind of sour-faced religion that we're talking about. Now, these Pharisees and scribes, they're flocking from all around the region in order to hear Jesus teach. Why? Are they excited? Are they needy? Are they hungry to learn from Jesus? No. They view themselves as the gatekeepers of the religion. They made all these extra rules, and uh, they are, have the religious power. And so to them, it is about tradition. Tradition needs to be defended. You have to maintain, you want to keep things the same. That's what you're going for there. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he is not about tradition, he's about transformation. He's not about religion, he's about redemption. And, and in fact, he keeps giving redemption away, not to the rule keepers, but to the rule breakers. And we can't have that. That'll be a problem. And so people are loving Jesus, they're flocking to him, he's turning their hearts to God. Shouldn't that be good? Well, no. The Pharisees won't like Jesus because Jesus is not a Pharisee. They're not going to like that. They want religion, they want rules, they want power. The Pharisees want to keep things the way they are. Jesus came, and this changes everything. That's going to be a problem for the Pharisees. Jesus wants transformation, not tradition. He wants redemption, not religion. And in light of this, the Pharisees view themselves as God's gift to the world to pass judgment on Everybody else's ministry. <laughs> I've met these people. They're really fun to interact with as a minister. It's really nice. So uh, think of it this way. Think of a new popular restaurant. Just open. It's the buzz around town. Everybody's loving it. Everybody, it's packed every night. And everybody's eating and just filling them. It's great. Except there are always a handful of people there that are there with different motives. They're called food critics. It's their job to show up to a new restaurant and pass judgment on it. They didn't come because they're hungry. They didn't come because they're excited. They came to critique. 
And they, they win in their job by being particularly negative, and that's what they do. Those are the Pharisees. They're here not to eat, they're here to critique. All right? So those are the very first sermon critics. Love sermon critics. They're great. Uh, so here's a question. What about you? Do you come to these Sunday morning times hungry, or do you come to critique? Now, let me put it this way. When you drive out of our parking lot, when you wait in a line to drive out of our parking lot, okay? <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> when you are leaving our church, are you in the process of critiquing the sermon or using the sermon to critique your life? That's different. That's different. Are you here to learn or are you God's gift to the rest of us schmucks? That you're here that, to instruct us and help us. Is that, is that the way it goes? I mean, are, are you here to learn? Are you here to critique? I want to let you know, as pastors, our job is to do our level best every week to prepare and to deliver, but the responsibility is really yours. Because every Sunday we have the Word and we have the Holy Spirit. And if you can't learn with those two engaged, it's on you. It's on you every time. If you come hungry, you will go away fed. If you come to critique, you will go away hungry. Think of it this way. If you have the best preacher in the world, and I will tell you, you don't, okay? But, but if you have the best preacher in the world, you can harden your hearts and not grow. But if you have the worst preacher in the world, I hope it's not true, but if you do, you come looking to learn, and there's the Word in the Holy Spirit, you can be fed. And the case in point is in our story. Talking about the best preacher in the world, I'm pretty sure that's Jesus. And here he is, the Pharisees. What a privilege to sit under the teaching of Jesus. And they go to critique. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Now, all I've done so far, I've burned a lot of time just setting up the stage on one main player. And it's going to be important for us to understand as we go through Luke who these people are. But I haven't even gotten to the story yet. And it's a great story. Let's jump into it. Continuing in verse 17. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Look, some people are so broken they need carried to Jesus. What's a paralytic supposed to do? To get healed, you have to go to the healer, but he, he can't move, right? I mean, we talked last week about the leper, and the leper ran to Jesus. The paralytic can't run to Jesus. Some people need carried. And so he has friends, good friends, who will inconvenience themselves in order to carry him to Jesus. Well, well at least they'll try. <laughs> because they get to the house. Jesus is in a house teaching, and it is so crowded. He's so popular. It's so packed. It's crammed in there. In fact, the doorway is choked, and it's overflowing outside the house. They can't get one guy in, let alone a bunch of friends carrying a paralytic. It's just not going to work. <laughs> but these guys are like, man, we carried him all the way here. So help me, Jesus, we will get him to Jesus, right? <laughs> they are not going to be deterred at this point. And so, fortunately, uh, ancient Palestinian houses were more often than not constructed with an external staircase that went up to the roof. 
And that's because the roof was flat. It was like a patio. All right, that was an outdoor living space. When Peter got his vision in Acts, it's recorded, he was on top of a roof, uh, on a space like this, just praying. Right, so you might hang out, out, out up there. You might hang your laundry out to dry up there. It was a useful space. The uh, floor of that roof, the way that roof was constructed was from mud tiles that would be baked in the sun and then put up there. So they're solid enough with the construction you can walk on them, but at the same time, uh, they're... Uh, Fragile enough that you can break them up and, and tear them out of the way. And so what these guys do is they start thinking outside the box. They think, man, we can't get in through the crowd. I know. Let's go up the stairs to the roof. And so up they go. And they get up there, and they're probably walking around going, okay, I'm guessing the teacher is probably right about here. Set them down. Let's go. And they start scratching and digging and clawing their way in and breaking up the roof. And pretty soon, these guys invented the skylight. That's, there, there it is, right there. So skylight's invented. But I want you to imagine the scene from down underneath in the house, right? So here Jesus is teaching. Now, because of the crowd, tons of people, they'd be silent so that more people could hear him. He doesn't have amplification like I do, right? So they're quiet. Jesus would stand. They would probably be sitting sitting, and, and they'd be crammed in. And now he's teaching. But all of a sudden, they hear up on the roof. They hear footsteps up there. What's going on? And then pretty soon, they hear some some scratching up above, right? And then, and then pr- now some dust is falling down right in front of Jesus. And, and I'm sure at this point the, the teaching might... So now there's a clawing and a scraping sound. Pretty soon they're like, oh, look, we can see the sky. You know, and there's a hole and there's probably a guy's head looking down. You know, and he's saying, yep, there he is. Right? We nailed it. Bring him over, right? What is going on? Now, now they have to lower their friend, the paralytic. Now, remember, they didn't bring rope. This wasn't their plan. How do you, they didn't make this huge hole. They've, you know, maybe this big. And they've got a paralytic friend on his bed and they're going to lower him down through this hole onto the ground and the guy can't help. How's that going to go smoothly? It's going to be awkward. He might slip and fall. He might plop there. We don't know. Here's the thing. These guys are desperate. They are determined. They are willing to put up with inconvenience. They're willing for it to be awkward. They're willing to be inventive. They just want to get their friend to Jesus. What about you? Will you be inconvenienced in order to carry people to Jesus? Would you do that? Like, would you be the paralytic's friends? Will you be desperate and awkward and inconvenienced? I I mean, look, you'll say, well, I invited them to church. Yeah, I get that. Would you say, hey, I'll come pick you up? Or I'll wait for you outside. I'll meet you. I'll go in with you so uh, you, you don't have to walk in alone. And afterwards, we'll go out to eat and I'll pay. It's inconveniencing yourself. Will you invite them over to your house for a bonfire or cookout and share your testimony with them? Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, not as bad as carrying your paralytic friend and ripping apart a roof, okay? So you're on the low shelf here, right? So you can do that. Or at the very least, can you give them a door video card and say, look, this video kind of communicates what changed my life. I'd love it if you'd watch that. That's low shelf inconvenience right there. What about inviting them to an event? Like our church is doing an event and you're busy or you're you're not as interested in that event, but you're going to go because you know they might be interested and you can invite them. Ooh. Will you be inconvenienced? Don't be like a Pharisee. Be like one of the paralytic's friends. Well, the story uh, is not over. It's about to get a little bit more interesting. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 20. Then when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Now, there's some interesting things here. I don't want you to be misled. At the very beginning there, it says, he saw their faith. Don't misunderstand. That is not the amount of their faith. Remember, it is not the amount of your faith, but the object of faith that counts. So, if you have faith that I am a billionaire and I'm going to give you a million dollars, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, like you, you don't know. Like, it doesn't matter how much you believe that. It ain't going to work because the object of your faith is defunct. You believe that I'm an alien with magical powers. does not matter how much faith you have. It's wrong. If you believe in Jesus, it does not matter how much faith you have. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed. But the object of your faith is secure. It's right. Faith in Jesus is what they had. And so because of their faith in Christ, he forgives this guy's sins. Now that's a classic moment. Don't miss the humor in Scripture, right? Like, think of all these guys went through to get this paralytic in front of Jesus to get healed. He's right there finally through the roof and all this, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? Jesus come again. Because it sounds like you said my sins are forgiven. You understand I'm paralyzed, right? Did you see them lower me down here? I'm kind of hoping for a healing today. What is going on here? Are you serious? Let me ask you guys a question. Which would you prefer? Option A is that you will be paralyzed on this earth. You will have your sins forgiven. You will get a resurrected body and walk for all eternity. Or option B, you get a healing now and you temporarily walk and you go to hell for all eternity because your sins aren't forgiven. Which would you choose? You see, what's going on here is this guy is asking for the crumbs from Jesus' table and Jesus wants to give him the main course. This is the thing Jesus came for. His main mission is the forgiveness of sins to secure eternity for us. And he gives the guy the best stuff. Now, of course, the Pharisees don't like it. In, in response, they say, wait a minute, time out. Only God can forgive sins. And they're right. Actually, the G, Jesus and the Pharisees, they will agree on this point. Only God can forgive sins. Let me explain it this way. The only person that can forgive sins is the offended party. So let's say you sin against me, right? And then you come to me, you, you admit it, you, you apologize, you ask for forgiveness. Now, if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit in that moment, I will extend forgiveness. Our relationship is healed. We're good. I'm the offended party. I extended forgiveness. What if it goes a different way? What if you sin against me, but instead of coming and talking to me, you go to somebody else, your friend, and you say, here's what I did. I feel bad about it. And your friend says, oh, you're forgiven. Now, our relationship was not healed in that moment, Right? You get that? The offended party has to be the one that extends forgiveness. 
And, and so now all sin is ultimately against God. God is the, forg- the, the offended party. It is God who needs to extend forgiveness. So here is Jesus. Jesus claims to forgive this guy's sin. Question, did the paralytic ever sin against Jesus? Only if Jesus is God. That's the issue. That's the issue. So this is a very clear claim to be God. Jesus knows it. The Pharisees know it. There is only two options on the table, therefore. Jesus is God, and this changes everything. Or option B, Jesus is not God. And therefore, the Pharisees are absolutely correct. Jesus is blaspheming. He is a heretic. He ought to be put to death. Those are your two options. He's God or he's not. That's the issue on the table. So, so I try to imagine the, the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees where, where like they're using the same words but speaking a different language. You know what I mean? Like so, so, so you're saying that, that only God can forgive sins. Uh-huh. And, and, and you're forgiving sins. Uh-huh. But, but, but only God can forgive sins. Right. But you forgave sins. Exactly. Look, guys, it's a short line. It like, connects the dot. It's a short, straight line. I'm trying to make it easy on you, right? Like, they're, they're just not being able to do it, right? Jesus agrees that only God can forgive sins, and Jesus forgives sins. Now, they're going to require some, some proof, evidently. And so Jesus sets up a riddle. He says, okay, which one is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? He doesn't answer. So we're left to kind of guess, wait, which way was he going? What's that mean? Because listen, um, it is actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. What if I did that? What if I stood here today and said, hey, based on the authority God has given me, I now declare all your sins are forgiven. Did that work? You don't know. How do you know? Can you see it? There's no proof. You won't know until you get to eternity and then it's too late. But what if I bring a paralytic up here and I say, rise and walk? In that moment, you will know. It will be put up or shut up. Proof will be in the pudding right then and you'll know. So actually, to, to say the guy is healed is actually a little bit more risky. But here's the thing. While forgiveness is easier to say, it's more difficult to do. So what will it cost Jesus to heal this paralytic? The Holy Spirit's power through Jesus. He, God is omnipotent. God costs God nothing. It won't cost him anything to heal the paralytic. But here's a question. What will it cost Jesus to forgive that man's sins? It's going to cost him the cross. It's going to cost him everything. Forgiveness is easier to say, but it is harder to do. So Jesus says, well, sigh, fine, so that you may know, dude, rise, walk, see... Right? Like, there's your proof. He doesn't say it that way. Actually, here's how he says it. He says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, don't gloss over the title there, Son of Man. I'm going to be straight with you guys. Uh, it, textbook sermon preparation, I shouldn't go into this point. But I don't care because I have to. Because the point, we're reading Luke. We're learning about Jesus. Luke wants us to learn about Jesus. There's something here we need to learn about Jesus if we're going to understand Luke. And it is that term, son of man. Did you know that is the most common way that Jesus would refer to himself with that title? Well, we ought to understand that. It's used 25 times in the book of Luke to refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. What's that mean? Oh, what happened to the Son of... I thought it was the Son of God. 
Oh, I know. Maybe Son of God refers to his deity. Son of man refers to his humanity. So this is the hypostatic union, union again, right? No, it's not what it means. Because after all, Jesus uses the term Son of Man to prove that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So you're telling me that everyone born of a man, every human being has authority to forgive sin on behalf of God? No, it's not what this means. This is a very specific title out of what we call the Old Testament, out of a book called Daniel. An Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. And if you're going to understand Jesus, you've got to know Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let's look at it together. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. I love that title. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a very interesting passage in the Old Testament uh, because you have uh, the ancient of days which is presumably God the Father. But then you have the Son of Man coming. Now, the Son of Man is giving glory. God doesn't give his glory to another. This guy has glory. This guy is served. This guy is worshipped. This guy is the king of the eternal kingdom. This is God. But wait, that's God. All of a sudden, we're knocking on the door of the Trinity already in the Old Testament. And so what we have here is God the Father, and coming before him is the Son of Man, evidently the Messiah, the eternal king of the eternal kingdom. Here's what I want you to catch. Luke's story is not about a paralytic. Luke's story is about Jesus. And there's much we need to learn about who Jesus is and what he is like. Look, if Jesus is just another nice religious moral teacher, I don't care. What's that worth? But if Jesus is God himself come to earth with the authority to forgive sins, this changes everything. So here we are. We have redemption, not religion. We have transformation, not tradition. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. In fact, that's how the people respond. Let me give you the last verse. Verse 26. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You think? <laughs> Is that an understatement? Or, uh, Captain Obvious, are you sure, buddy? Like, <laughs> absolutely, man. Now, why are they so, why are they in awe? Why have they seen extraordinary? Because they have had enough of the Pharisees' religion and tradition. Now, today, they have encountered redemption and transformation. And it's extraordinary. In fact, one of the things I want our church to catch today is a very clear contrast between religion and redemption. And I put together a list for you. And let, let's look, look down this list together. The first one is that religion is ordinary. Redemption is extraordinary. Religion's been around a long time. There's nothing... Ex exceptional about it. It's ordinary, but redemption is extraordinary. About uh, this next one, religion must be defended. Redemption is celebrated. Religion is something for which you work. You earn your way through religion. But redemption is a gift. 
And because you work for religion, look, you're never sure if you've done enough. And so religion leads to fear. Redemption leads to love. Because of the work aspect as well, religion is exhausting. Redemption is exhilarating. Excuse me, religion brings paralysis. It locks up your life. Redemption brings freedom. It is so freeing. Religion is outside in. All right, so we're going to give you these external rules and you're going to try to keep the rules and try to get them from the outside. Maybe it'll seep in and change your heart. We're not sure. Redemption goes the other way. We, we seed the gift of Christ into your life and from the inside it blooms its way out. It's different. Religion is about nitpicking. Redemption is welcoming. Religion is critiquing. Redemption is humbly learning. Religion is past-oriented. Redemption is future-oriented. And ultimately, what what I've told you already, that religion is about tradition. Redemption is about transformation. Which do you want? In fact, I want to talk in closing about our church and then about your life. We did not call our church Religion Chapel. We've kind of tipped our hands on this one, right? Which way we're going. It's because we are not fans of the Pharisees. Do you understand? As we go through Luke, we're going to see that Jesus kind of has a twofold ministry. On the one hand, he is always welcoming and receiving and forgiving messy sinners, broken sinners, but they're humble and they're repentant. Those are Jesus' people. They feel right at home with Jesus. At the same time, he's on a twofold ministry. The second part is that he is relentlessly ticking off the Pharisees, like on purpose, like all the time. Christ has a twofold ministry, and we follow in his footsteps. That's who we want to be. My, my supposition is that churches can do one or the other. Like one group will feel at home and the other won't. It's the way it is. So, so either messy, broken sinners will feel welcome here, or Pharisees will feel welcome here. But you can't have it both ways. You'll be, you'll be alienating one group or the other. And, and the sadness in my heart is that I fear that too many churches today are such that broken, messy, humble, repentant sinners do not feel welcome or at home, but Pharisees fit right in. And that is so wrong. And that is not the church we are. We need to be a church called Redemption Chapel where messy, humble, broken sinners can repent and connect with Jesus and grow. That's who we are. To just tease that out a little bit, I got an email uh, a couple months ago. We don't, people assume that we get bad emails all the time. We rarely do by the grace of God, but I did get one. So uh, I suspect this woman does not go to our church anymore, so I feel free telling the story. Uh, She had been coming for about a year. Uh, she said so in the email. I asked my staff. Nobody knew her. Uh, she wasn't in our database, which means she likely doesn't give, and she certainly doesn't serve. So she's not really engaging. We didn't know her. There was no real introduction. There's been nothing positive in the email. There was, believe me, nothing positive. And uh, yet she had some complaints. And the complaints were these. Uh, number one, on Palm Sunday, uh, Pastor Jared preached. She was none too flattering. And, uh, but had the complaint that it was Palm Sunday and we as a church should not mention that it was Palm Sunday. 
We didn't hand out palms. And furthermore, she said, at the very least, you should have had a palm tree on stage. I looked in the Bible. There really wasn't a verse for that. So, but uh, there it is. And then her next complaint was Easter Sunday when I preached. She was none too flattering. And uh, her complaint then was that I didn't do that traditional call and response of he is risen, he is risen indeed. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's the point. Now, what we're supposed to talk about on Easter is that he is risen. And we did that, right? What we didn't do is some call and response from tradition that a lot of people don't know. Therefore, we would be alienating a bunch of the people we're trying to welcome. So we didn't do it. We didn't have to. Here's the thing. If you are not thrilled about the redemption that is happening in here, about the transformation that is happening in here, if you are going to be eventually bunged up about the lack of a palm tree on stage, I will guarantee you eventually this church won't be for you. Something will happen. But instead, Redemption Chapel, we will continue to celebrate baptism stories. We will clap like crazy on those days. We love redemption. We love transformation. That is what our church is about because it is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So what about you? You have three options for your life. I want to let you know. Option number one is that you can bank your standing before God based on your righteousness. That's the path of the Pharisees. I'll warn you, it won't work. But I at least respect the Pharisees in this. They knew what their belief in salvation was, and they went huge. Go huge or go home, they went huge. They pushed all their chips in the middle of that table. They were all in for that. I respect that. It's just broken system. But that's you can trust in your righteousness. The second option is that you can trust in the forgiveness of Christ, his work, what he does, not you. That's redemption. That's transformation. My fear is that all too many people, even sitting in this room, might go for option number three, which is none of the above. I'm not going to go whole hog going for my own righteousness like the Pharisees. That's silly. I ain't into that. But I'm also not really going to let Jesus touch and transform my life. I'm not going to put it really on Jesus. So I'm just going to kind of drift. That won't work either. I want you to put your faith and your hope and your trust in the finished, completed work of Christ on your behalf. Let him touch you. Let him transform you. Let him redeem you. In fact, for that, I want to pray. Would you bow your heads? Father God, thank you so much that you have forgiven us through Christ. Lord God, we, we, were, we admit that as children of this world, we, we tend to revert to religion and draw into religion. and We want to do self-righteousness and rules and judging and scowling. And Lord, weed that out of our lives. Weed that out of our church. Because redemption is extraordinary. Thank you very, very much for forgiveness through Christ. We're so grateful. And we realize that we did nothing to get there. We were carried there. And that you've done that through Christ for us. And we are so grateful. Would you please not let us just dabble in the, in the edges of these things in some kind of option number three way where we do none of the above, but rather, Lord, that we would push all our chips to the middle of the table for Jesus. That you would transform us and redeem us. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.